Okay, so um, tea and coffee's over. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you wanting to know your Son and to know nothing but him and him crucified. And so open our eyes, we pray, to Luke 23 as we read now the last bit about your Son's death and help us to realize the degree to which this was the absolute pinnacle of your your purpose with us and the ultimate statement of your love to every single one of us. And help us, Father, to feel that right in our hearts and to not forget it and to live our lives in the knowledge of that love, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. For his sake and for his glory, we ask this. Amen. Amen. Right, so, Luke 23, we uh, ended yesterday with the Lord breathing his last and... I suggested that he gave his life as an act of the will, that, no, as he said, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down of myself. And so, he had, I suggest, his last breath in his lungs, and he breathed it out in the form of those words, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And that was it. So, we got to the point yesterday where our Lord Jesus is there, impaled, as it were, or hands above his head, on the, on the stake of wood, on the tree trunk, and he's, he's dead. And all his acquaintances, we carry on now, and the women that followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, the Lord had said, will draw all men unto me. And as he said to the Jews who didn't believe, when you've lifted me up from the earth, then you will know that I am he. So, I said yesterday that God doesn't kind of do magic, that God is not like a magician, as it were, but that there is some unusual power in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for me in the way that he did, and that man cannot be passive to that. And so it's stressed that people watched. People were transfixed by this. And I pointed out how this all was prefigured back in the... Old Testament, when Israel were in the desert and they sinned and they were bitten by serpents and the the venom came up in their bloodstream and they knew they were going to die and people were dying all around them. And Moses makes a, a brass, a bronze serpent and puts it on a pole. And whoever looks to that lives and no longer are they sick and they, they're cured and they live. And the Lord Jesus says, in the same way, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so we look to him there like they looked to that serpent lifted up on a pole. And this is what we're doing. We who, who as it were, have got the seeds of our own death and self-destruction within us, the, the venom, as it were, coming up in our bloodstream. Uh, and we look to him there... And we will be saved. It is as simple as that. And so this is why it stresses in these accounts of the crucifixion that people stood watching. They were watching him. You know, two men died on both sides of him, but he was the one that absolutely gripped their attention. And they stood, it says, the women that had followed from Galilee stood at a distance. It is emphasized twice in Luke here that the women followed from Galilee. Now, when his ministry started and he was up in Galilee, 
doing miracles, feeding thousands of people. Oh, they thought he was wonderful. Everybody thought he was wonderful. But now things have changed. And the crowd were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So I think the point is that these women had followed him in good times and bad. They had followed him when the going was good, when it was popular, and also now in his final time of dying. And of course that is what it is to be loyal. That is loyalty, isn't it? Not just to follow the Lord when things are good, when it appears that, oh, you know, God came through for me. For me, I had this disease or this or that, and oh, God cured me. Jesus cured me. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's also in the, the hard times, like when the Lord Jesus died, where you don't understand why should the good suffer. This is the obvious question. Whenever you raise that question, why did the, why did the good suffer? Well, look at the Lord Jesus, the ultimate suffering of the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And so, <clears throat> these women had followed him not only from Galilee, but also to the cross, when it appeared that he was the ultimate loser. And it says that they stood afar off. And as I keep saying, you've got to put the four Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. When you put them together, you think, well, who are these women? Well, you are told, John, that, that this was... Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, and it seems a couple of other relatives. And it says here that they were standing uh, at a distance. When you compare this with John's Gospel, he says that Jesus saw Mary, his mother, standing by his cross. Now you read that she's standing at a distance. Now, as I keep saying, there is no contradiction. It is facile and simplistic and grasping at straws to say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. No, it doesn't. It's like if I asked you all to write down what had happened in the last 15 minutes since we've all been sitting here, you would focus on different things. But they're not, they're not contradictory accounts. So, what happened? Yes, Mary did stand by the cross of her son. And Jesus says to her in John's Gospel, he says, Woman, behold your son. And he means John. And he says to John, behold your mother. And I think that now when they're standing at a distance, that is after that instance. So to start with, Mary, his mother, is standing by his cross. But then she stands at a distance. The Roman historians say that if you showed sympathy with a victim of crucifixion, then you were liable to be crucified. And to stand by the cross was to show sympathy with the victim. And that could have led them to be crucified. And I think the Lord's saying, you don't need to. Stand at a distance. It's okay. I, I get you, but I don't want you to have to suffer this. And so they stand at a distance. And so there's the crowd and then there's a no man's land. There's a no man's land and then there were the, the, the tree trunks, the, the stakes of wood where the three men were crucified, the Lord and the two thieves. And the soldiers were, stand, were sitting at the foot of the cross of Jesus gambling um, over the uh, who got the who got the clothes 
So, I think that what you see there is these women seeing Jesus crucified, they come out from the crowd, they walk across the no man's land, and they stand by his cross. And the Lord basically says, thank you, but you don't need to. Don't want you to be crucified as well. And so, you see develop a theme whereby seeing Jesus there crucified inspires us to come out, to come out from the crowd, <clears throat> to stand with him. And of course, as they came out of the crowd and stood by the cross of Jesus, everybody would have been shouting abuse. You know, this was murder, you know, by, by torture, and everybody was all hot-blooded. And I mean, they were cussing Jesus. They'd have been cussing his mother, cussing his relatives, his auntie, everything, you, whores, and all the rest of it. You can't imagine what was said, because of course Jesus didn't have a human father, did he? God was his father, and everybody thought Mary had got pregnant by a Roman soldier or had a fling or something like that. Now you can imagine the sort of crude language they'd have been shouting. And this is it, that you and I, as we try to reconstruct in our own minds the Lord's death, stand there in front of him, and something in him there, doing this for me, inspires us to come out publicly in our faith, in our, in our witness for him. We're all very shy in, in many ways. Even if you're an extrovert by nature, you become very shy when it comes to stand up, stand up for Jesus. And we all do sort of get a little bit, a little bit awkward about coming out publicly in our faith for the Lord Jesus. But these people were the same, but seeing him there, they came out and walked from the crowd across that no man's land and stood uh, by his cross. But then he says, it's okay. And he, he motions to John the Baptist, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, um, behold your mother. You look after her now because I'm dying. I can't look after my mum. Uh, you look after her. And, she, and he nods to her, that woman, behold your son. Like, look at John as your son to look after you in your old age because I'm, I'm dying. And, of course, the tragedy of the whole thing is beyond words that a woman, Mary, who was the only person apart from the Lord Jesus who actually knew what had happened, that she was the only woman who got pregnant without a man. And nobody else would have really believed that. Her other kids wouldn't have believed that totally. Um, or not at all, maybe at the time. And she is standing there watching the death of her son at 33 years old. How old was she? 50? So you've got this 50-year-old woman with graying hair, I imagine, let's say 50 or whatever, watching the death by crucifixion, the death by torture of her 33-year-old son. I mean, the whole tragedy of it. You know, people complain that, oh, my life is so tragic, so hard. Yes, I don't dispute that. But you see, his life was lived like this for us, absolutely. Having our absolute humanity and knowing it all, so that, as I keep saying, none of us can say, nobody knows how I feel, poor me. Maybe nobody on this earth does know how you feel, but there is somebody, the Son of God, in heaven. You see, Jesus is real. He is there. He's not an idea. In your head, it's not a black box in your brain that you call Jesus. That is Jesus as an absolute, real, actual person who was here, 
who is now in heaven and who shall come again. And a man named Joseph, this is Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the council, that's the Jewish Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. A man of Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, the body of the crucified could only be given to close family. Could only be given to close family. And this guy, who is known as uh, an honourable man, who is well known, and he's a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, so he's like, if you like, a member of parliament, as we might say in this country, he goes to Pilate and says, I want the body. Well, are you, a, are you a relative? Because Pilate could only give the body of the crucified to a close relative. Well, no, he wasn't a close relative. He wasn't related at all. But I think that the idea is that the Lord's death created a new family, whereby, for example, Joseph considered that, yes, this dead man is my relative. He's like my brother, my son my cousin or whatever, and yes, he is my relative and I want his body. Now, Joseph then comes out, and we also read in, in John's record that Nicodemus also comes out for Jesus publicly. Now, this is a big thing, because he was a member of the council. Well, who was the council? The council was the, the Sanhedrin, his 70 elders of Israel. And it says here he was a good and righteous man and he had not agreed with the decision to kill Jesus. Well, in Mark's Gospel, you read that the Sanhedrin, the, the council who tried Jesus, unanimously, that means all of them, voted for the death sentence for Jesus. They all, it emphasizes this, they all voted to give Jesus the death sentence. And that includes Joseph of Arimathea. But it says he was a good man and he didn't agree with it. Well, a more legalistic sort of mind would say, look mate, you've got to stand up, stand up for Jesus. If it comes to voting uh, to give the Son of God the death sentence, like, come on, you can't just vote for it, worried about what people are going to think of you and worried that you might get picked on. So that was a failure. A failure. He failed. But, you see, he does now come out for Jesus, and so that was scribbled, that was forgiven. And that is why he is described here as a good and righteous man. And this is us, isn't it? That, that time and again we fail. We stand up, stand up for Jesus as we ought to. We don't say what we should, we don't act as we should. But I'm trying to direct our attention to you personally standing before the cross, the uh, tree trunk, upon which the Lord Jesus was crucified. And there you are motivated. You are motivated that nothing else matters. So what, what, what people think of me? So what, what people reckon? And I will stand up, stand up for Jesus, and I will come out for him. Because he died for me. Now, we know, with the benefit of hindsight, that three days later, Jesus is going to rise from the grave, and then after 40 days from that, he's going to ascend to heaven, and he's now the king of the cosmos, etc. We know that, 
But I don't think that any of them really believed that. And I think Mary Magdalene did. But I don't think that. Joseph did. The disciples certainly didn't. Because when the Lord rises from the grave and he meets them, he says, you fools, why didn't you believe? And the angels say to them, don't you remember how he spoke to you? That after three days he would rise again. And they're like, nah, don't believe that. Wow. So I don't think that Joseph of Arimathea was cleverly thinking, yeah, in three days this guy's going to rise again and he's going to be pretty grateful to me that I stood up for him. I don't think so. I don't think that that was Joseph of Arimathea's motivation. I think that he actually didn't have any clear vision of the Lord's resurrection or any clear faith in that. I mean, the disciples themselves didn't have that, you remember on the road to Emmaus, they're saying, oh, well, we hoped that it was Jesus who was going to save us, uh, but, well, he died, and worst of all, it's three days since that happened. So I think that Joseph does this purely because he is motivated by the fact that I have seen this Son of God dying on the cross, and now nothing else matters. I'm not coming out for him in the hope of some future reward, but simply because he there is so, as it were, magnetic, magnetic to me, that I see him there and I must respond. I'm not worried about personal benefit, personal reward when he resurrects, etc. And I'm saying that as we imagine him there crucified, then this has that same effect upon us, that I'm not doing this for personal benefit, for future reward, but out of response to him and for him, that that is who I am responding to. So, he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And he took it down from the cross. He Joseph of Arimathea took it down from the cross. Now, how did he do this? I assume with a ladder. I said yesterday that the cross, the stake of wood on which the Lord was crucified, was not a huge, massive, you know, pole like in, in the Catholic Church where the, the, the body of the, the, the crucifix is way up in the sky. But I suggested that the actual feet of Jesus would have been up to, say, my chest. That he was put on a, on a tree trunk, a tree trunk that one man could carry uh, to the place of crucifixion. And when he said, I first, they gave him a sponge with vinegar on it, put on a hyssop stick. And I said, a hyssop is a reed that is not more than a metre or one and a half metres long. So he was not crucified way up there in the sky. And so that's why I I suggest that maybe he did need some sort of a ladder, um, but not a very big one. And he, Joseph of Arimathea, he who was well known, he who was uh, seen as an upright sort of member of parliament, as we might say, a member of the Jewish council, he comes out publicly and climbs up this ladder and manages to get this body down in front of everybody. Well, that's what you call coming out for Jesus. That's what you call coming out for Jesus. And, you know, we're all shy. We're all shy to come out and say, yes, I I, I am a Christian. No, I'm not doing that because I'm a Christian. 
I'm going to do this because I'm a Christian. Well, we're all shy. We're all shy. No matter how extrovert you are as a person, you, you become shy to do this. And yet, he there is the one who inspires, motivates, and, and helps you to, to think, well, nothing else matters now, because he died for me. Then I shall die for him and hang the future and hang personal benefit, hang anything. I am just doing this for him. So he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb that was hewn in stone where never man had yet been laid. It was the day of the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. And the women who had come with him out of Galilee, it says again that they followed him while he was in Galilee and now they are still following him. So that's what it means to follow Jesus in the good times when it was all popular up in Galilee and in the bad times when he's now the loser apparently crucified. They returned the prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. When you look in John's Gospel, it says that they, uh, sorry, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea uh, prepared a huge amount of spices with which to bury Jesus. And, and the critics say, where'd they get them from? Uh, there's more spices mentioned in John's Gospel than were used to bury Caesar when he died. And I think, you know, the Sabbath is now coming on and the, the Passover holiday, with no business to be done. And so my impression is that in the three hours between the death of the Lord Jesus and sunset, when the Sabbath started and the Passover holiday started, these guys were going around madly, selling all they had at ridiculous low prices to buy all these spices in which to embalm the body of the Lord. Why? Again, not, I suggest, because of personal hope and benefit when he resurrected, because I don't think that was very clear in their minds, but simply because there is something about him there crucified there's something about him there crucified that means nothing else matters. I will surrender everything. I will go his way and hang what you think, hang what people think of me. So we're going to take the bread as the symbol of the body of Jesus and the cup as the symbol of his blood. And quite rightly, are we asked to, to make his death for me the central point of what it is to be a Christian? Because although we only do this occasionally, this actually is the spirit of our lives. That we live continually in the shadow of the fact that he died for me. That man is not alone in this world. But that he is with us. In the sense that he died for us. And he remembers it, of course, far better than we remembered it because we weren't there. We are just trying to reconstruct it. But that love that he showed to us continues all the time. And when you feel alone and when you feel unloved, when you feel a loser or whatever, as we all do at times, well, you have him, he there who experienced all this, loving you. And you have the knowledge of the fact that actually I am loved, that I actually do have meaning. Right, so let's give thanks for the, uh, the bread and the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread in which we see the symbol of the body of the Lord Jesus and the cup in which we see the symbol of his blood. 
And we know that it must be more than words with which we thank you, but in our lives. And we pray that in our hearts and souls, we might really respond. For his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.